You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Today, we are joined with uh, by a very special guest. That guest is Kevin Funk. How you going, mate? Very good, Owen. How about yourself, mate? Very good, thanks. Very good. So this is the third episode of Shares Month, and we've labeled it Advanced. But don't let that put you off, listener, dear listener. We are talking about things, and we're going to try and break it down in simple terms while carrying through some of the lessons that we learned from the last couple of weeks. And in particular, uh, we're going to talk about the five-part checklist. Um, we're going to apply that to Disney, well, the Walt Disney Company, NYSE, Diz, D-I-S, or Disc Company is what we're talking about today. Kevin, straight up, I think you own Disney, right? I actually do, Owen. So full disclosure to all our listeners out there, I do hold and own Disney. Yeah, cool. How long have you held it for? Um, probably a couple of years now. Once I started to, starting to dig into the details and started to understand you know, the type of businesses that I actually own, and it was a bit more than some of the studio movies just sounded like a really good business, really interesting business as well. So probably a couple of years ago, I bought a little parcel of shares and um, been a happy shareholder since. Cool. Yeah, I noticed it's up 75% as, as of the date that we record this. It's up 75% year over year. So that's fantastic. Well done to you, my friend. So this is the first time you've been on the show. We had Catherine on the show last week. Can you just give us a bit of an intro into Kevin and I guess how you got into investing? Yeah, no worries. My folks really sort of always taught me to be a saver and the idea of sort of not spending a dollar that I have today and hopefully being able to have that that $1 grow into something a little bit more, that mm. was something that really related to me um, just on a personal level. And then, you know, throughout high school, um, I did, I think through school, I did the ASX share market game. 
Mm-hmm. I actually didn't do very well at all, uh, <laughs> which is probably no surprise to anybody at that stage. Like um, the way that I thought about investing back then was really much more of a, a mindset of how do you make money very quickly? And as we both know, that just doesn't really work. Yep. My sort of thought process during that stage was, you know, here's this business that's worth $1 a share. If that can double to two cents a share, yeah. one cent to two cents, yep. well, then um, I can double my money. <laughs> Sadly, it doesn't work that way. And um, you almost have to look at the problem the other way around. And the way that I was approaching that was really how the tail wags the dog. But slowly after that, through a bit of luck and a bit of advice through people that I met along the way, um, I started to get into more of the fundamentals of investing and what it actually means to really invest long-term. And this really led me down to start reading about sort of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's life and investing lessons and just found their stuff really simple. The way that they explained their stuff was really simple and I really actually related to sort of their values as people, things like integrity, simplicity and focusing on how a company and a business actually makes money. So Mm. yeah, that's a, a little bit about my story, my investing story so far. Cool. Yeah, it's great. I gravitated towards Charlie and Warren because their message is almost always the same whenever you hear from them. And I think PR companies and comms people spend their life trying to perfect the best communication strategy to an audience. And these guys, I would dare say they haven't had any training. They just know what they know and they just keep that principle going every time. And um, I keep those principles through time. Sorry, I should say like there was a, I think there was a Warren Buffett video, like a really short snippet where he did an interview, like it would have been like 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. I think it was black and white and he was interviewed about something and the same things that he was saying all the way back then when no one knew who he was Mm. are the same things that he's saying now when 50,000 people go to his shareholder meetings and it's live streamed and millions of people watch live, same principles. I I just love that about them. Yeah, it's that message that they really repeat over and over. And I think it was uh, Buffett that actually said, somebody keeps asking him, what is the secret of, of getting rich? And basically said, it's, it's to do it slowly. Uh, but that's not what most people want to hear. So, Yeah, Jason Zweig, I think I've said this on the podcast before, Jason Zweig, economist at New York Times or Financial Times, he says he's paid to say the same thing every day, 250 different ways a year. So, you know, meaning that the, the lessons stay the same. It's just what we put around it that changes. Okay, so what's your favorite part about investing? For me, it's the the learning part, like learning about how different businesses and things work, learning about how founders bring great ideas into fruition. And the other part is really digging into the tactics and strategies that management sort of execute on and finding out the reasoning behind why exactly these companies are successful. And finally, just being a, a part owner of a business that I love and where I use their products, I think that's something like I almost feel like I'm a part of uh, the story and the journey as well. Mm. And I really relate to investing almost like where you are planting seeds where you, know, you, you plant these little parcels of uh, capital and yeah. uh, it's a little seed in the ground and then you wait 10, 20 years and uh, then you have this big tree and, and some shade and, and something beautiful. So Yeah, that's a good anecdote. I love it. So one thing that I asked to I asked Kate during the first episode was, do you invest more in shares or ETFs or funds? How do you think about that? Yeah, primarily it's in direct ownership of shares. Yep. And then I've got a little bit of 
my wealth in some funds here and there. And then that's pretty much it. Not too much so in the ETF space, but um, yeah, primarily directly in shares. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting one because you just hear different people's take on things. And I think a lot of investors that invest the way that you and I do, it's much in more enjoyable, rewarding. And I just, I guess, just a, more in, a better experience when you know what you're doing it's just easy to buy individual companies and it's, I feel like it's a better opportunity set for investors. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think owning, when you can sort of do the work and you find it interesting to read about these businesses and really understand, you know, what makes them tick and how they sell and um, you know, the people that are involved within the company. I think that's just really interesting and, you know, I'm just a naturally sort of curious person. So I love learning about those businesses. Mm. Mm. I've got to be honest, uh, snuck this point into the conversation because you have a background in property, property development. I do. I just thought I'd get you to weigh in on the property versus shares debate and whether you have any type of insight or what you've found working on both sides of the fence over the years. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I know sort of Melbourne and Australia in particular has a, a great love for real estate and property. And, you know, I've, I've learned so much in my background working in that industry and, you know, met some really good people as well. Sure. I think it definitely has a place in everybody's per- portfolio because, you know, divers- diversification is something that is really important. But what I sort of see property and how I sort of see property is much more of a, a lifestyle sort of choice. I think that's got to be one of the big focuses of property first and foremost is that, mm. you know, having a roof, over your head, having a safe place that you can call home and uh, for your family and for yourself. I think that's really important. However, I think the key ingredient, regardless of, you know, whether you're a property guy or a shares and business guy is the time in the game and the ownership period of this asset or any asset is the key to being a long-term investor. You think about how our parents and grandparents in their property journey, you know, some of them have held on to their their homes for, you know, 40 to 50 plus years. And, mm. you know, the joke is that, you know, all these boomers have bought their houses paying, you know, $10,000 or 100000 back 20, 30, 40 years back and for their house. And ultimately, it's a product of being in invested within that home for such a long period of time. And I think going back on property or shares, I think that's the key to success. Letting time mm. do the work and letting things compound over a long period of time. So time in the market, not timing the market. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's great. And this is something we always talk about and we just talked about, you know, managed funds, ETFs, shares. It's like the, the little girl in the taco, I, you can have both. You can have this, the flat bottom, you can have the wrap, you can have the triangle tacos, whatever you want. Yeah, and why not? You know, I don't think things are so binary and I think most people – whether they realize it or not, you know, they've got their their house or, you know, what they save up for, their family home. And then, you know, over time, they, they when they're working and they're employed, they'll have super. And mm. some of that super is usually invested in, in shares anyway, whether they're fully aware of that. But it's just, again, going back on the, the part where it's just, it's just super interesting for me to learn about investing and Having a part ownership of a business, I think, is a is a really cool thing. And there's some really great businesses doing a lot of good in the world. And because of their business model, I think it gives them, you know, sort of structural advantages um, in comparison to other businesses. So just 
being able to read about them and analyze them, I think is a, a really cool thing to do. Yeah, for sure it is. It almost feels like you're doing, it can't be this much fun. <laughs> How can um, investing be so much fun? So we're talking about Disney. We've spoken, or the, the girls spoke last week about Disney um, and an introduction to how we apply kind of our five-part checklist. Mm. I know when you joined Rask, you came along with some ideas around how we can improve the investment process. And one of those ways was developing a really r- rigorous checklist. I think at the moment we have a check, like a checklist that's about 43 points long, mm. born out of years of investing experience, learning from other investors, et cetera. And within those points, we have scores that we apply to companies. Yep. And I think the key insight here is that's only the initial filter. That's the first, we try and get that done in two to three hours. I, th- I think it takes a little bit longer than that these days, but um, it is sort of something that's constantly evolving. Yeah. So even though we talk about these five points and as they apply to Disney um, and what the girls talk, talked about last week, there's so much more that goes into investing. So we're just hoping that this episode can be a bit of a primer for you. And um, it's great to have Kev on the show. So um, Catherine introduced us to Disney and Kate last week. They talked about kind of the different brands. We've got this great, I guess, flow chart and outline of what Disney actually owns, which we'll share in the show notes. It doesn't come from us. We'll share it with, with full attribution, of course. But um, I guess, did you always know that Disney owns so many brands? No, I didn't. No, like um, my association with Disney is really through you know, some of the sort of Probably like Bugs Bunny. Yeah, the Mickey Mouse type stuff, like yeah. where, you know, from your childhood days, right? Like it's it's all the the classics. That's that's the stuff that you would think is Disney. And as you sort of read about it a little bit more and find out that they own, you know, parts of Marvel and a little bit of Pixar and National Geographic and, yeah. you know, even even the Star Wars franchises, you're like, wow, this is this is pretty big. Yeah. And so in investing, we call the things that you can't see when you're investing intangible assets, mm. right? So, you know, an accountant looks at a building and they say it's worth this much and that would be what we would put on a balance sheet as property, plant and equipment. Mm. But what accountants can't see, they pretty much just bucket into this um, infinite bowl of um, intangible assets. And one of the things that goes into intangible assets is brand and I think the beauty of this, and this is what Charlie Munger talks about, is that intangible assets are the real assets. Yep. And just because we can't quantify them with an exact science doesn't mean that they don't exist. And this is what distinguishes, in my opinion, wonderful businesses from good businesses mm. is these types of assets. And um, yeah, I got to admit, I didn't know they had they owned ABC. Either. No, neither, neither. And not yeah. the a- ABC in Australia. We've got to add not the yes. ABC, the American ABC. Yeah. Mm. In that business just in itself is a is a really amazing business and wonderful business. So the fact that it's Disney as this overarching umbrella that owns so many parts of this, um, it makes it just a, a super interesting thing that, you know, we can share in as part owners. Yeah. I think one of the things that we're going to talk about is kind of the acquisition model of Disney. Do you remember how much they paid for Marvel? Do you remember what that was? I do. I have the, I'll get those figures up. Uh, just one, two secs. No worries. Yeah, because one of the things that I think people misunderstood when they bought Marvel and when they bought Pixar, and if we look at, say, like The Lion King, mm. I asked you guys yesterday if you've watched the latest Lion King, um, which was released in 2019. Mm. That's the third highest grossing box office movie of all time, right? Wow. And that was a rerun. Like it was a remake. 
And mm. that is incredible, right? Like how amazing is that asset? Yeah. And, you know, the really amazing part of that, just to hammer Owen's point home, is that that storyline, those characters, all the IP that we talk about, all the intangible stuff, the, the stuff that you can't touch and feel, like that was already within the box of Disney, right? Yeah. They already owned that. They already produced it. They know it was such a successful thing. Like I remember that was one of my favorite shows as a kid. Yeah. And then, but then you think about, so this is something that we call optionality in investing, right? Mm. So optionality is something again that you can't see and something that may not even exist. Mm. And this is where we, I think you and I differentiate from a lot of other investors. We're willing to bet on things you can't see that may not even exist. And not in the way that like a a company is just like a concept stock doesn't have any revenue, but I'm talking about something that you don't expect it to be, but it turns out to be, can be infinitely more valuable than something you can't predict accurately in advance. A hundred percent. And I think as we sort of dig deeper into what makes Disney Disney, we'll see this sort of unfold over and over again. And Mm. just on your earlier point, like, um, you know, way back in uh, 2009, Disney paid 4.2 4.2 billion for Marvel. Now, right. people, you know, I'm sure most of our audience or most of the people that we've spoken to have seen a Marvel film and understand, you know, the breadth of characters, the breadth of storylines that that franchise has now given them. And, you know, now that's extending to, you know, Disney Plus and now they've got, you know, spin-offs of the all the Avengers characters and mm. it, it's just a and and it's the storylines of all those years of comic books that have been written like um that's just a really amazing asset to have for sure and one of the things that i found really interesting and this is when i was watching i can't remember what it was exactly but i was watching something and it was a superhero show and i was like what is everyone's favorite superhero Uh, mine would have to be probably thor do you have a favorite it's hard to go past iron man i think i think it's sort of channels that little kid feeling within all little boys, I guess. Having, you know, some iron robotic suit over you that you could shoot things and, and, and rockets and lasers out of, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Black Widow's badass too. Mm. The reason I bring that up is, right, because like, I looked into this and there are over three or about 300 well-known characters from the comic book series. 300. And most of us probably only know... 10 or 20. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible, right? Because then you think about that library of brands and intangible assets that they've got that haven't really been monetized yet. Or untapped. Yeah. Do you think about so many more franchises, so many more, and they talk about, you know, what what is it the where they step out of the old universe into the new one? Like there's a whole new series of characters that are going to unmerge or the the new Hulk or the new Captain Marvel. Who's coming in next? How many... There's going to be, I, I, we should have looked at this is up in advance, but there's got to be a few Hulks by now. Mm. I did like Eric Banner as the Hulk. Yeah. But um, is it Mark Ruffalo? He does the. I think he's the new, new it, guy. And then Edward, a, Norton, Edward Norton did yeah, one as well. I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. So there's been heaps of these things and we just love it and we can't get enough. Mm. Anyway, before we get bogged down in just talking about our favorite superheroes. So we know that Disney has more than one thing that it does. And I think that's what makes it really challenging for people to research and value. Because what Kate uses Disney Plus, I use Disney Plus too. Do you use Disney Plus? I do too as well. Um, And thank you to my uh, girlfriend who might be listening to this. Uh, She's the one that actually pays for this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky you're at the same IP address. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, well, the thing is that people listening to this that are probably following along home and doing some research hopefully over the past couple of weeks into Disney, the first thing you probably realize is, yikes, this is a big company. How do I value it? How do I do this? What am I looking for? And I think if we can just speak in general terms, right, we, we know that Disney is involved in the entertainment business, right? Yep. It's basically the ultimate entertainment shop because it has physical assets like the theme parks. Mm. And then it's got what we talked about, like imaginary assets, mm. like intangible brands, but then it also distributes licenses so other people can use those. If you had to pick just one of the kind of the services or products that it provides, you know, theme parks, broadcast, Disney Plus or licensing, which one like appeals to you? Like from an investment perspective, what's seems interesting probably the most interesting piece for me is the emergence of disney plus and how you know through obviously everything that's happened with covid it's been really hard for the business in terms of the parks and their cruises and their hotels and resorts and all that kind of stuff where restrictions have not let those facilities run at full capacity but having started disney plus in november 2019 to where it is now from a subscriber base of almost nothing to now at close to 95 million subscribers. That is a big, big number. And it's a very, very quick rate at which they've done that. Yeah. And the reason why, you know, I'm so excited about that part of the business is, you know, this is one of the most recognizable brands in the world. And yes, they've had the direct connection to the consumer where, you know, People can visit the parks and they can buy the merch and all that kind of stuff. But ha- now having and the emergence of how important data is to businesses, being able to analyze people's viewing habits, what shows are working, what ones aren't, which franchises do they like the most, which characters do they like the most. Like that, having that data in their hands with the management team at Disney, I think is a, is a very, very big advantage. And I think the way this story will unfold over the next couple of years is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah, because we know that in the subscription space, and I would agree, Like I, I often think that licensing is free money because you've already got the brand. You can just say, yeah, sure, go for it, Kevin. You can uh, use my brand, but I want 4% royalty of everything that you sell. Mm. Like It's just free money because it doesn't cost me anything. It's just cream on, yeah. cream on the top, yeah. right? Yeah, but the thing is, the reason I'm glad you said the subscription business because one of the things that we talk about when we talk about investing in direct companies, we, sp- we often use this phrase called the economics, the economics of a business. Mm, People sound- are like, it's a very serious word you use there. Yeah, economics. So, economics um, is what we think of at school where you study like supply and demand and all that sort of stuff. In mm. this sense, it's a little bit different. Really, the study of economics is how to financial variables relate to one another. Mm. And in this instance, why we like the Disney Plus part of the business and maybe the theme parks is more of a handbrake is because the economics are better. And so what do we mean by that? We mean that it can add 100 million people every month paying for the service, which means that I've paid for Disney Plus for over a year now, Mm. right? But I've been to a theme park once in my life. And they didn't have to buy a theme park to offer that one service to me. They're just, they've, they've bought a company, but they're effectively providing this service to me every month. I'm on a contract. They just get that money flowing in. And the, the next part of it, which is really interesting, is once it hits scale, which is code in analyst plan for once it hits its preferred size or once mm. it gets to a, a point where we think it's more mature, the cash flow is just going to explode. Yeah. 
because yeah. the cost base is so low, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Like, you know, it only costs them so much to make these shows or to for a lot of the content that they actually already own, like it doesn't cost them anything to really host it apart from maybe the, the server fees or the, the IT and computer expenses it takes to actually deliver that Disney Plus service to you in your, in your home, to your TV, right? Mm. Everything else, if they have 200 million subscribers or the three to 400 million that they're aiming for in uh, 2024, that is, you know, it has all the makings of something that could be very big because mm. every additional subscriber, you know, everybody that has Disney and all the friends that don't, if they start to get on as well, well, that's just extra money that comes in on top because the cost to stream it to them isn't that much more. Yeah. So once they've got the servers in place, once they've created the content, effectively, it's every new person that comes on after the 100 millionth yep. is just pure profit. Up to that 100 million, that's the that money that they earn from those people might be the, the money that covers all of the costs and all of the content. But beyond that point is what we would call an inflection point. Let's just say hypothetically it's 100 million. Yep. That means the 100 and one. 100 million and the first person that's come on after that, I don't know how I phrase that, but the first person after 100 million, that $9 a month or $11 a month is basically streaming straight through the income statement, past the costs and expenses and straight down the bottom line. They might make more from that customer than they did from the very first one, right? Absolutely. And that's the the beauty of that whole imaginary intangible asset, right? Like it's mm. it, it is highly highly scalable and it's you know something that you know we look for in the businesses that we look at and um, it's something that we love as analysts and and shareholders yeah and this is the thing and totally like so for, for the mechanics of this so people may be thinking okay that sounds cool but is there anything else that goes on so there are costs that go into creating content which is a serious expense for many of these companies Netflix spends billions on content, so does Disney now, and they have to. That's table stakes, especially for Disney because it's new. So that means when we're forecasting these companies and when we're trying to come to our valuations, what we need to rely on is the company hitting that scale in time to create positive cash flow, so to cover all their costs and send some of that back to the mothership, if you like, which is what we're trying to buy into. But there are other parts of the business that we also need to factor in. Maybe we'll get to valuation in just a moment, but do you think that Disneyland and the physical assets also play a role? I think they also play a really big role. If we really sort of dig into the weeds of the financials and everything, and it's something that also surprised me before I looked into them, is that the the park section, the theme parks, the resorts, all that type of stuff is actually the biggest earner. Mm. Um, yeah, which I, I was surprised about as well. Absolutely. Because like, you, th- you think, oh, these blockbuster movies, especially after the Avengers were so successful, like, you're thinking, wow, they must, that's, that's where they're making all their money. But realistically, and I think Disney understood this at a, a very, very early stage, was that their ability to monetize and their content and their creative storylines and characters and all that stuff, that is done through, you know, the merchandise. It's done through going to uh, that ticket at Disneyland or Disney World. I'm mm. not sure if you've been before, Owen, but... Um, yeah, went uh, to the Tokyo is busy. It is long. Like the lines, <laughs> I, I hope you sort of like standing in line because that's what you'll be doing for a lot of it. Like, And then what they do is they upsell you on, you know, there's things called fast passes where yeah. you can kind of skip most of the line, but you still have to kind of line up too. But in saying that, the experience is, is amazing. Like... Um, 
you know, I went there as an adult probably like four or five years ago actually and um, you feel like a little kid again. Yeah. When you're there, like it's you, you've just got a, a smile on your face despite the long lines and it's executed very, very well. Like there's everybody's in character and you go to different sections of the park and you're kind of in a, a bit of a time warp or a bit of a teleport where you, you, you go into that world and you're immersed in all the characters and the ride and the merchandise as well. Yeah. And I love it. You know, something that I've realized recently with the podcast is that we do a lot of these things from behind the curtain, so to speak, but getting out and actually meeting with people is probably the best thing for us. And it's for the best thing for listeners because you guys want to talk to us, you want to come talk to Kevin or myself or Kate or whoever is in the team. That physical aspect, while we don't make money from that, that is actually a really fundamental point of differentiation for the brand and for just engaging with people and reaching people. So I think it has its role in the business. I think for Disney, it's it's not it's the kind of like the the ugly sisters um, to the Cinderella in terms of like the Cinderella might be the the licensing and the actual Disney Plus subscription that's going to be the the game changer going forward. Just skipping along a bit, Kev. If we talk about, we know that from the last two episodes, we know that we prefer like owner operators and people with skin in the game. Catherine talked about Bob Igar leaving, the new Bob being in town and how his performance, his pay is skewed more so to his performance, which is a good thing for the long term. I want to take it to the next level and just kind of ask you a question around about like skin in the game and how important that is to you as an investor. Because everyone has a different opinion on this, I found, especially once they've been investing quite a few years. Yeah, for me, like it means that the management team who are essentially in charge of running the company on behalf of us as shareholders, like uh, I tend to think of that as almost like the captain of the ship, right? Like they're the ones that are are steering and navigating this business to where we want to be as long-term investors. And, you know, for them to have skin in the game and have ownership in the business, I think that's a critical thing for me as an investor. I just think it means that they're super aligned and it's important because when they own shares and when they have that ownership, you know, they will share the same long-term investing mindset. And this is critical, I think, because as part owners of a business for, you know, the next 10 to 20 years, like that's something that you want for them to be on your side and for them to also share the views that you have of the business going forward. For sure. One of the things that we talk about when it comes to small caps, though, is there is a limit to how much they need to have. And I think the easiest way to relate it is just back to versus their personal wealth or versus their salary, how much, how many shares are they own versus their salary. I think that's a really easy way to kind of quantify it in your head. But one of the other things that we talk about a lot is, I guess, at, at least at RASC, not every analyst does this, but one of the things that at least I believe is a good workplace culture, meaning good doesn't mean ping pong tables and fresh fruit every day. Good is horses for courses. Some businesses need a rough and ready culture. Some businesses need a kind of kosher culture. So one of the things that's really important is understanding the culture of a business and effectively how the business fosters innovation and fosters creative thinking. Because for a business to be enduring, effectively what we're looking at is people to make creative things, right? I'm sure we can use CGU and we can use graphics to make some of these new films, but it starts with like innovation and brand and creativity. So how can, as an investor, how can we get a sense of what's going on inside a business? Are there any tools or anything that we can use? 
Yeah, there's a few tools that we look at sort of internally at RASC um, that really can give us an idea or clues as to you know what the heart of this business actually is like. One of the ones that we use quite often is uh, Glassdoor. That's uh, a website that people can Google. And it's basically a website that goes through and lets employees, whether current or ex, um, to rate the company that they actually work in. Yeah. And having done, just looked up the numbers uh, and the reviews just earlier, you know, the Walt Disney Company itself is at 4.1 stars out of 5. Mm-hmm. Um, Marvel is 3.6 out of 5. Pixar is 4.2 out of 5. And Lucasfilm is 3.6 out of 5. And these are pretty high numbers, especially, you know, the ones at Walt Disney and Pixar. Like, um, Very high. Really gives us confidence as investors that these guys long-term holders as well because if you're not treating your staff well and if the culture at work is not great then every year you're going to have to go through new employees and Mm. all that knowledge that is you know that you pick up about the company's history about the company's values like all that gets lost if turnover is high and I think we even uh, looked up earlier that you know the average employee at Disney um, is there for nine years which is you know huge pretty long in this like a modern age where people are don't like it after six months, they go to something else. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's a really good sign of building something that is pretty special. And for the listeners at home, there's a, there's a book out there called Creativity Inc. And that's about the Pixar story um, and how that evolved. So and that's a really, really good read and just gives you clues as an investor and a shareholder about what it is to be actually like working in yeah. you know, one of these great businesses. Yeah. And... The thing is, some of these businesses don't necessarily, don't just go up the score and think that that's great. One of the things you can do is you can compare it to another business. And sometimes if a company has a low score, it could be because there's not many responses on Glassdoor or seed mm. companies. So make sure that you actually look for common elements in the reviews to try and determine, is this just you know a bunch of people that got laid off because that business was made redundant? Or every business has disgruntled employees, even the greatest businesses on earth. So it's about determining how much of a role that plays in the creativity or in the innovation inside a business, the growth of a business. Some companies don't need that much creativity. You know, we might use another example of say, what's maybe an example, say Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company. That doesn't Mm. need a lot of creativity and it doesn't have that many employees at all. There are, it owns other companies which have employees, but for them, it doesn't, that rating's not going to mean a lot. Talking about Disney, Kev, I feel like you've got some, numbers here on how employees are incentivized. Is that you or is that Catherine? Yeah. So like one of the other really interesting things was that, and just reiterating Catherine's point um, from the other podcast is how high the ratio of the salary being paid to the CEO and even other members of the board, like how high that is compared to other businesses that we've looked at. Like for Disney, like the CEO is like his salary is 90% performance based and that is you know, uh, yeah. really up there. Like yeah, I can't think of, I don't think I've heard of that. I, I haven't either unless, you know, it, it's. Unless you count maybe like Larry Page or um, the Google founders that effectively take a dollar, but they, they are incentivized in a totally different way. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, for, for somebody to come along and go, hey, 90% of your end sort of outcome financially result is really measured, I think that shows you that all of that is merit-based. Like it means that if all these goals that are being set and the strategy that's being put out 
isn't achieved or hasn't been, isn't tracking along where uh, the board and the shareholders and everybody thinks it should be, well, he is not actually going to be financially remunerated. Yeah. And it's the same with the board. It's it's really high there. At, they're sitting at 83% performance-based comp. I think it tells you that these guys very good at what they do and they're willing to sort of put their their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Yeah. And if you look at, say, even of that 90% performance-based competition uh, compensation, 30% of the salary in total is effectively restricted stock units. Then we've got stock options for 15% time vested, uh, restricted stock units, 15%. So in effect, 50% of everything regardless is going to be given to them in stock or shares in the company. So even that itself, even if you do do well, most of that then becomes long-term focused options or shares that skews the bonus and the incentive again towards the long term, which and, is really promising. And something that we love to see yeah. as uh, as investors and analysts because it means that if they perform and if they do deliver on the things that they say they do, they're also getting shares. So it means that they just become further aligned to us as shareholders. And that that really builds long-term wealth. Absolutely does. I tell you the worst, like if we look at counterpoints, it's when, and you see this even in the big US companies, Australian companies, is when a manager earns more short-term incentives than long-term. I think if, like one of the most important things in, this is why it's in the top five, one of the most important things is actually just making sure that the people running the business are incentivized in accordance with your, like your, I guess, incentives as well as a long-term investor. If they have short-term incentives, you're going to get short-term results. Charlie Munger, show me where I'm going to die and I won't go there. Mm. The ultimate incentive, just don't, get involved with businesses that don't have the right skew in this mix, both at the board level and at the executive level. Um, I think that's a huge, huge advantage for people. There is one other thing here. You know, when Bob Igar resigned, Bob Chapek took the reins. Mm. After 30 years, I believe internally, not necessarily with Walt Disney, the company itself, but after 30 years internally, got the top job. Do you like to see that? Do you like to see internal highs versus external highs? It's something that I love to see, Owen. Like, uh, I think it means that, you know, everything that we've spoken about with the culture, with, you know, knowing the business well and, and being involved at, for so many years, he would know that business inside and out. Yeah. And, and it just means that the transition is, is often seamless. And it means that that person has also really earned the, their stripes and it isn't like some professional CEO that comes in and, you know, is there for a salary or is there for, you know, to bump up his next uh, retirement plan. Like he, you know, probably loves and really loves working at the business and, you know, wants to see it succeed as well. And I think having that pool of internal talent is something that the best companies in the world do. Yeah, again, we see a lot of, Kev used the phrase professional CEOs. Um, We see a lot of CEOs, you probably know the type if you walk down Collins Street in Melbourne, George Street in Sydney, or anywhere in your capital city where it's like a business hub. (laughs) You probably see them, um, shiny suits, and people that are professional business people. Mm. I, for one, do not want those types of people running my company. I want the guy that rocks up in ripped trackies and (laughs) the old Marvel t-shirt from 30 years ago and just loves what they do. And they're just happy to create a product that is like an extension of themselves. And it goes just back to the whole long-term 
thinking the long-term horizon of uh, of these people, like the guy that's in there for, you know, the contract that's worth X amount of million for that many years, like doesn't have any stock, doesn't have any ownership. Like he's not going to care when his contract is up. Yeah. And, and we want that level of care in, in the management um, and the leadership in the businesses that we own. Mm, for sure. I know you own a different company, which we spoke about recently, but um, there are many companies out there that have really good remuneration structures that are effectively paid out over five years. You know, that's probably ideal for me. So when the, the CEO gets rewarded in sh- with shares in the company, which vest, meaning that they start out as options or they start out as something else and then they turn into shares at a particular time when they vest, you know, if I give you a bonus this year or you give me a bonus this year, I don't get all of the bonus up front. I get it over one, two, three, four, and five years. That again creates more incentive because then by the fifth year of me being at the company, I'm earning uh, bonuses from all of the years prior. And if I leave, then I give up all of the bonuses that I could earn in the future. Those are really, really uh, compelling things that kind of augment people's incentives to the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if they're shareholders and if they're truly building something great here, they're going to want to participate, you know, long after they're gone as well, like right from from the employment in that, in that sense. Like, you know, sure. w- when they're leaving, like, you know, if they're retired and, you know, Disney is still doing well, maybe they've got 500 million subscribers by then. Like that's something that's, you know, they're going to enjoy all the fruits of the labor, all the hard work that they've put in. For sure. Yeah, for sure. So how about when we talk about brand, Catherine and Kate talked about it. I talked about it with Kate in the first episode as well. We, we talked about the basics of what a moat is and a competitive advantage. What do you see as Disney's competitive advantage, if it has any at all? I think their, their biggest competitive advantage is that premium content, the premium storyline, the premium creativity. Like mm-hmm. with Disney and um, the whole intangibles thing again, it's um, there is no commodity to Disney, and I think we've seen this sort of play out with DC Comics and their supposedly attack on on Marvel. Right, like they've tried to replicate this hot superhero theme with their blockbuster movies, and it just hasn't really delivered to anywhere near the same level. And that's because one superhero is not the same as the other. And one movie storyline is not the same as the other. And I think having that premium brand and also having that brand you know, in, in something that's vastly scalable like a movie where you, know, you pay X amount to produce it, but then you can make potentially 10 times that if it's a, a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that you know, really is driving this, uh, this business forward. Yeah, I can't think of any company in the world that has a better competitive advantage from intellectual property. Maybe you could say Coca-Cola with its brand, maybe Nike. Yeah, I mean, there are maybe some sporting clubs even have really good brands, um, McDonald's. But to be honest, Disney's probably the number one in terms of its capital light model and its ability to monetize. And I think that's something that we were talking about just before we recorded was its ability to monetize is far superior than almost any other business. It's even it's a, in streaming land. It's actually centered to their whole business plan, right? Like um, I know you mentioned that uh, sort of infographic that we'll leave in the show notes. There's actually one that's original from sort of 1957, which um, I believe was 
it's almost like the original business plan of how Disney would work with the with the shows that it has, with the storybooks that it has, with the merchandise, like all of that at the center of all of that, almost like the Iron Man heart, so to speak, was the creative output. Mm. And that is in the best storytelling in the world. And, you know, to really put some numbers to that, like in that scale and the premium content and the, the IP is, you know, Avengers Endgame cost $356 million to make, but it took in $2.8 billion at the box office. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and this is only one of many. If you go through the top 10 grossing films of all time, you get a Wikipedia list, I think it's top 100, you can see that Disney dominates, absolutely dominates, even just with reruns like The Lion King from before. And that is such a strong competitive advantage. It's also becoming, it's also kind of forging itself in the production capabilities as well. There aren't too many now that they bought 20th Century Fox, mm. Pixar, Lucas Films. There's really, in the production side of things, on the production side of things, there's really not that many notable competitors, like not at this size. I mean, there are production companies, but these guys are huge in that way as well. And one of the things we spoke about before with regards to the streaming and video on demand was effectively free CAC. And what we mean by free CAC is CAC stands for CAC, stands for customer acquisition cost. Because Disney has so many loyal followers, it can effectively get so many customers for every new product or every new service that it launches overnight. Whereas everyone else, all the rest of us, we have to fight for every new customer, for every new podcast listener, for every email subscriber. We have to fight for that. But Disney can effectively turn on something and it's people are lining up. There's so much time that's been put into every customer that they already have, right? And I think that comes back to the long-term you know, business model and the plan that they have. like, And that's what sort of gives them confidence that they can outbid other people on these massive acquisitions that they make, you know, when they paid for Marvel, when they paid for Pixar, even though they might not make money on the front end, like even if the, the films start off small, but then, you know, they're not making that much from that movie ticket. It's, you know, the, the Christmas day when the kid buys the booty toy. Yeah. It's when... You know, they buy the lunchbox, it's like the T-shirt, like all the other ways that they can actually monetize. And I think Disney are probably one of the best companies in the world at doing that. Yeah, for sure. You've got some notes in here around the size of the business. So we know that Disney is a $300 billion plus company, right? In terms of what we call enterprise value, which is all of the shares in the company plus um, the debt. Enterprise value represents the cost that any person or company would have to pay if they bought the company outright. It's like when you buy a house, the house has debt, you have to effectively pay for the house to be paid out as well. Mm. So we look at that, but you've got in the notes here, and this comes from the Investor Day presentation, which you can access on the, the Disney Investor Relations website. They currently have, say, 95 million subscribers across their primary assets, which are Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN. But by 2024, their outlook is for 300 to 350 million subscribers, which is a huge feat if it can get to that. It's massive because, you know, in, just for comparison's sake, um, Netflix the minute has about 208 million subscribers. Yeah. And this is interesting because these three units are across a broad spectrum. Like we've got sports, entertainment, and live TV, and then right down to like video on demand. So if it can do that, it's effectively, you know, it's already at 100 million or thereabouts. This is a business that could achieve that. And if it does, it's going to be at serious scale. I want to talk to you briefly about, I guess, 
is this industry growing and how do you see Disney's ability to grow in the future? Like, is there something that they can do to, I guess, grow their business over time? Like, what are they going to do even if they get to that 300 million? You know, can they can they monetize that effectively? I, I think, you know, having touched on it earlier, I, I think it just gives them so many more opportunities to have a better and deeper relationship with their customers. If your little kids are watching Frozen or a spin-off of that or, or you know, they, they can watch, they can pull up The Lion King or Aladdin whenever, you know, for every weekend, you know, without ads, think about the how much time they're getting in front of that person. And, you know, we talk a lot about investing, especially in this uh, big technology space of like, you know, attention and eyeballs. And mm. I think for Disney Plus to really control that, it's, it's, a, it's a really big step in, you know, feeding the funnel back into, you know, parks and back into resorts and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think the performance of Disney Plus is something to really really sort of stop and marvel at like I think originally marvel. interesting <laughs> no pun intended there I like I think you know originally they you know way back then they had uh, their guidance for Disney plus at for 2024 to be 60 to 90 million subscribers um, and you know this is a service again that only started a year and a half ago and it's already surpassed that so you know we talk about COVID pulling forward a lot of demand like these targets that you know were pretty big targets. It's it's half of what Netflix subscribers have right now, right? Like um, they've pulled that forward in um, a year and a half, not even. And yeah, you know, it's crazy when you think it's taken nearly two decades for Netflix. To, exactly. Yeah, Netflix yeah. started in January two thousand and seven when they started streaming. Yeah. it's taken them that long. To, yeah, and and it's taken them that long to get to two hundred million subscribers. Yet Disney have been able to do that in a year and a bit. Yeah. I think that really shows the power of the brand and the demand that, you know, people have for their content. For sure. I want to talk about something called TAM, Total Addressable Market, T-A-M. Um, it's something that a lot of investors talk about and effectively represents the yearly revenue or the yearly sales for a particular service, product or industry. So TAM, um, Total Addressable Market. And you can Google, use Google search to find some snippets of paid reports that are free they give you a kind of insight into what other analysts and investors think of an industry. So here's one from um, Grandview, which um, is a research company, and they said that they believe streaming video will be worth $230 US billion by 2028. And that includes um, both enterprise video streaming and consumer-grade connections. But I think if you include YouTube ads, TikTok, and all the other social media platforms, I believe the pie might even be larger by then because all of these social platforms are converting to that. Another source was Statista. Um, sometimes they use other people's data to put their to put it into their charts. But Statista did some research into video streaming, just pure, you know, streaming video on demand. And they said that it's projected to reach US seventy one billion dollars in twenty twenty one. The Australian market by uh, twenty twenty five was estimated to be one point one seven billion. So tiny globally, the streaming video on demand. Uh, market is estimated to be worth $108 billion. So if Disney can snatch more and more of this share, they're going to be a beast just as it is, right? Um, you know, we're looking at, you know, 5 to $10 billion in revenue from the, the Disney Plus segment. If it can get well beyond that and start pushing through more affiliates, 
We're talking tens of billions of dollars potentially up for grabs. And that is when it will hit scale. Because I'll just throw some um, statistics at you here, Kev. So the share of US adults who who pay between $10 and $20 per month for streaming services, this is based in 2019, was 46%. So 46% effectively have one, maybe two low-cost streaming services. And so I, I have about four or five, maybe I'm the outlier, Disney, Netflix, Optusport, um, just the list stand, the list goes on. I've already trimmed a few in the future. But that kind of gets me excited about how much further this business could have to run as well. I, I think the the recent numbers are that, you know, Disney has come up as a clear number two to Netflix and yeah. really quickly as well. Like yeah. even though, you know, some of the their revenues are dropping from all the ca- the cord cutting from their cable TV services and it is getting a little bit cannibalized by Disney Plus, I think that platform is a much more effective platform for the business. And, you know, while those other revenues drop and it might be a little bit of short-term pain for the longer-term game, we've seen, you know, a lot of software businesses transition out of that perpetual license, meaning, you know, that that software that you used to pay two or $3,000 forever fee for, but then didn't get any updates. Well, now instead they're charging you that 20 or 30 bucks a month. And it's just a far superior business model because it means that month on month, uh, that business is getting you know, reliable income. And I think you know, we're really seeing this um, come to fruition with Disney. Mm. And so this is all to say, like, we've looked at um, some external research on this as well. And you can, if you're an analyst trying to piece this together, you can look at what the other big competitors are doing to try and get a sense of how big the industry might be. When an industry is growing, we like growing industries because yes, there is competition, but the business should still be lifted by the growth in the industry, generally speaking. So one of the stats was that 28% of US adults had never subscribed to a streaming service. So that's 28% of people that will almost certainly have to in the next few years, maybe say not next few, maybe next 10 years or so. Um, so that's even more people coming onto the platform. And of course, many of you will know that you don't just have to have one of these services. If um, I imagine in the US market, many people will have more, more than one in say five years. That's my belief. You may not agree and that's investing, but my belief is that people will have more than one of these or at least something to bundle them all together, which, by the way, Disney does. I think that's fast becoming the norm. Like um, if we look back, you know, 10 years ago, like as Aussies, we would pay for Foxtel and have that box there and, you know, it might cost us 60 to $90 a month, whereas now we're getting these services for $10, $15 a month, then, you know, it's 10 for Netflix or 14 for Netflix and then 10 for Disney and then 10 for KO. Like that's still not as much as what we used to be paying and we're getting a better quality service, on-demand service and, you know, in, in high quality uh, stream straight to our home. Like I think that's, we had the money back then and the budgets back then to pay for something that was far, not a superior product. And, yeah. you know, I think that tells you that, you know, people have uh, that entertainment budget to spend. Um, one of the things that's interesting is when you brought up KO, I just realized I also have that and also have Amazon and <laughs> Apple Plus because I was looking at the next thing we're talking about. And um, Statista says that while the growth of the video streaming services like Netflix and Amazon is not over, we assume that the adoption of such services will soon reach its peak, especially in developed countries, which I agree with. It's probably fair that the growth rate of the industry might slow. They say new offers such as Apple TV might attract new customers, but the general lack of willingness to pay in huge potential markets like China will cap the growth in this segment on a global scale. I want to refute one of those points, which is that about the developing markets or you know emerging markets like China, India, et cetera. 
Netflix is most likely to do this in the future if they don't already. Um, I don't follow the company that closely. But advertising is, I think, a key way that businesses will be able to extract value from more markets over time. So offer a kind of light version where you get served ads. I know one of the companies that I follow closely, which is the Trade Desk, they effectively specialize and they are knocking on the doors of these streaming services saying, hey, we advertise everywhere else. On YouTube, you get ads. Why don't you let us put an ad on your Netflix account? And so this is this is something that's interesting. Kev, at risk of this conversation going for too long, there's one final section or one part that I want to acknowledge, which is the key risks. Can you just give us the short version of some of the risks that you've identified? I think one of the big ones is really post-COVID world. Like when do these restrictions and things start opening up for for Disney, especially with their parks division. It, it is such a big sort of uh, driver of revenue for them. Even if, you know, the, the government in the US uh, has restrictions on the capacity, you know, like for the park, for, for Disney World or Disneyland to open on only at, you know, say 20 to 40% capacity, they might actually still be losing money. So that is something that, you know, we're keeping a very close eye on. The other one would be, you know, the golden well really here is that that storyline and the, the new blockbusters and the new mm. movies that are coming out. If, if for instance, we see a few flops there mm. uh, with a few different movies or a few series that come on to Disney Plus that you know aren't as successful as The Mandalorian, that's something that is going to be a big risk. But you know, really, the other one is culminating in that, and it all relates onto the same thread is you know these big acquisitions that they've done over in time whether it be you know Pixar uh, back in 2006 for 7.4 billion or or Lucasfilm with all the Star Wars rights uh, for 4 billion in 2012 or paying 70 billion for 20th Century Fox you know which owns all the Simpsons stuff if one of these big bets doesn't pay off I think that's going to be a very big risk to the company and shareholders because it means that they're paying a whole lot of money for, for this asset, for these storylines, for these characters. And if the public don't take to that, like it means that you know all of that money could be going up in flames. But seeing that record, seeing the track record of Disney, like $4.2 billion for, for Marvel, I think they would have made you know, <laughs> that in chump change yeah, um, through, sure. what, through one of their movies and look at all the storylines that they've yet to explore. Um, yeah. yeah. So the savviness in acquisitions, which is not common... Uh, it's got to be said that most acquisitions do fail, at least to fail to add value for long-term investors. But Disney has done it so well, I think, by just focusing on intangibles. I think they were very early in that piece. Um, there are some other really good examples of companies that I know you and I follow closely, like Constellation Software, which is out of Canada, which is another company that focuses on intangibles, but a totally different type of intangibles that focuses on software and buying those smaller software companies and putting them all together, but not in a way that's normal. And so some companies do find a, f- a recipe that works for acquisitions because obviously, just so we're clear, there are two ways to grow. You can grow by buying other companies and acquisition or you can buy, uh, grow organically just by improving your business, more sales, more sales staff, more marketing, et cetera. Okay, so one final thing, Kev, which is just the valuation. Last week, uh, Catherine walked us through valuation in, I guess, the simpler sense or simpler sense which was that you know you can use ratios like the price earnings ratio, which compares share price to the profit per share. That's a really simple ratio. There are many others, but one that we might talk about is uh, DCF analysis. And if I may, I might just speak to that quickly. So a DCF analysis, otherwise known as a discounted cash flow, effectively takes the cash flows of a company 
So in this case, you know, we're talking free cash flow. What that equals is not exactly profit, but something similar to that. And you can follow this some tutorials on our website, but it's effectively making a forecast. How many Disney Plus subscribers are we going to get? How much are they going to be charged? How many people are going to go to theme parks? How much revenue is that going to bring in? How many licensed deals are they going to do? How much revenue is that going to bring in? And then we forecast that typically five to 10 years into the future, which to be honest is very, 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 very difficult. It's not difficult to do in a spreadsheet. This is difficult to get right. We're just making a, we're trying to make a very educated guess here. Yeah. So our research informs our forecasts. And then we say it's going to make this much cash in the future. What is the value of that cash that Disney is going to generate in today's dollars? So let's say hypothetically it's $200 per share. We get, you know, we, we forecast all the cash flows, we sum them up in Excel, we put them in today's dollars with the MPV formula, net present value, yeah. and then we divide that by the shares and we get to a value which is effectively the value per share of all that cash in the future. Mm. Have I missed anything important there? No, I think the, the one thing about valuation is that it is much more an art than a science. Like we can, you can get very technical, which into the statistics and and modeling, you know, out things to three decimal places and whatever. But ultimately, it is my my valuation will be different to your valuation, Owen, yeah, and your sure. your valuation will be different to some other fund manager's valuation. Um, and that it all comes back to what is the story that we as analysts are telling? Yeah, you know, how fast is do we think that Disney can grow? How fast do we think the parks will come back? All of that is a, a very personal thing. And I don't think anybody can be exactly right, but we can be hopefully directionally right is what we're aiming for. Yeah. So when you say directionally right, if we forecast growth from Disney, we would hope that we're seeing growth, not declining sales. But that doesn't mean if a company isn't growing as fast as Disney, it doesn't mean that it's not worth anything. It's still worth something. And this is what a lot of people get wrong is that we can even come to a reasonable valuation of a company. But the thing that changes is what's called sentiment or effectively people's behavior in the, in the investment markets. We can have a great company that no one else recognizes as a great company and the valuation or the share price can be depressed. And that's a buying opportunity. But that might take years. It might take years for people to recognize this. So one of the things that I looked at with Disney, for example, is the ratios like Catherine talked about which was comparing the price of the company to its fundamental value, like its profits mm. every year. And if you look, the relationship between those two things, the Disney share price and the profits, is actually growing. So meaning that for every dollar of profit, the company is getting more expensive. So the valuation is stretching up. And I believe the reason that that's happening is because people have realized how good Disney Plus is going to be for the company, how much money they're going to make for that. So then all the investors in the market, like you and I, mm. we will pay more for Disney than we would have five years ago. And so us as analysts, we're effectively looking for things in the financial statements that suggest the business is growing more profitable and other investors might think that it's better in the future as well, which is not easy. No, but you're, you're absolutely spot on with all those points there. Yeah, it's what we will say is that people who don't know um, discounted cash flow analysis or any type of advanced valuation, what they tend to think is that it is the answer. And I don't think it is. No, and it, it's the mistake that you know I made um, as while I was developing and learning my skills as an analyst. I, I, 
I thought if I could understand discounted cash flows, this DCF thing that everybody kept talking about, I thought that was the magic bullet to find undervalued businesses. And after understanding and, and picking that apart and building my own models, I, I learned that actually it's not. It's it's all the other research. It's all the other little things that, you know, understanding why exactly Disney Plus could be better yeah. than Netflix or why is it catching up so quickly. That's the stuff that really matters. So just a quick question then on the end here, just as kind of like a, a final piece on this, would you use something like a discounted cash flow analysis on Disney if you're going to, like, would it be an appropriate company to use that type of modeling on? I think it definitely is. It's much more than some of the other businesses that we look at where, um, you know, we do look at some businesses that are sort of classified as disruptors in the industry. And these are businesses that are spending a whole lot of money right now to really grab market share quickly. Um, and often what that means is they're not profitable. And, you know, traditional investors would look at that and go, oh, they're just losing all this money. Like what, what a terrible business. And it's the same mistake that, you know, people early on in, in a story like, um, you know, Zero, which is a, a business that I own and listed on same. the ASX. It's like early days, people saw that business as, you know, a money incinerating machine. And what they didn't realize was the stickiness. Um, and that just means the customers that they brought on, they were really long-term customers. Um, they were staying with the business for a long time. So sticky, sticky. Which means that, you know, yes, in year one, it doesn't look like they're making much money, but in years five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that's when the the machine really turns on. But you know, in order to do a discounted cash flow, you need to have cash flows. And if these businesses aren't making money, well, it makes it very hard to forecast something when it doesn't exist or is negative in this case. So, but Disney, on the other hand, is has a very good history, um, very long history of uh, positive cash flows. And what that means is. There is certainty in some of these businesses. Like if we can see, you know, these points where the the vaccines roll out in a post-COVID world, like that's when we can start to see, hey, this business is is back to where it is. And, you know, Disney Plus is growing really well. You know, what does that mean in terms of the forecasting? What does that mean in, ter- in terms of the revenue that they're bringing in? Mm. And I think, yeah, if I was going to value Disney, I would be valuing it using a discounted cash flow analysis. You could value it with some other things. What I will say for those people who didn't keep up here or want to keep up but didn't, you can go and take our free valuation course on Rask Education. It's totally free. Um, it's like five or six videos. I recorded about three years ago, pardon me, and it takes you through everything you need to know about all of the different valuation techniques and you can get some downloads and spreadsheets. I actually use Woolworths, the Australian supermarket company, as my example company. All right, so Kev, the question that everyone wants to know you know, we've been through the moat, we've been through um, intellectual property rights, we've been through the history of the business using acquisitions, some of the key risks like failing to adapt, acquisitions, many others. Um, we've been through a discussion of valuation. Would you consider buying shares in Disney today? I would. I, in terms of my investing philosophy, I usually buy small pieces of shares. And yep. all that means is, you know, one year I might buy a few Disney shares and then the next year I buy, might buy another few. And then the year after I might buy a little bit more. And the reason I do that is because, you know, I want to own a small piece of 
the very best businesses in the world. And I honestly believe that Disney is one of those very best businesses in the world. I usually don't rush into the buying, but what I am happy doing is buying a little bit and then waiting for the business and the management team to really deliver. So, you know, we want to see those results being delivered onto the scorecard. And um, as they keep delivering those good results, we want to, it means that the business is actually strengthening in time. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear your views on this, mate, as well. Yeah. yeah I, so, so we've got Rask Invest, which details all the companies that I, I own. But I would buy, I would consider taking a small part in Disney today. And I think anyone that has listened to this in its fullness, well done for making it through over an hour of podcasting and talking about investing at a more advanced level. As you can see, that most of our, it, our discussion is around business, not about what's going on on the stock screen or what's going on on a chart. It actually has very little to do with that because that's the way that Kevin and I invest. And when I think about Disney, you know, I think it's pretty much a business that's like a fortress. The fortress has to be maintained. Um, but if they can do that, I can see it printing more money long into the future. And so for me right now, I would be happy to take a small position. So whether that's, you know, 1% of a portfolio, whether it's a little bit less, a little bit more, um, and giving it time to grow. Some of the key things that I'd be watching out for if you do own it are things like, are they still growing with subscriptions? That's a key metric, making sure they're growing there. The free cash flow thing that we talked about, that's important, but that's kind of like a trailing indicator. So free cash flow, um, you can look up um, on our education site and there'll be a tutorial on that. But um, effectively, want to see what I want to see is more subscribers. I want to see like a new franchise in the next, say, three years or like plans for that. And I want to see good quality content inside the Disney Plus subscription. I think the key differentiator between Disney Plus, Netflix, and Amazon is its ability to distribute high quality content. Because the, the, the way that Netflix was described to me is like a spaghetti wall analogy. Just throw it out there, see what sticks. Whereas Disney is very, very high quality. And I think that's the, the differentiating factor. So if they can nail that, which they say they are, I'd be a happy holder for a very long period of time. Knowing that it's been around for what, more than 50 years? Yeah, it's um, it's not something that's just popped up. And I think, you know, the, their recipe book is uh, pretty much spot on there. Yeah, cool. So this was a long conversation, Kev, talking about Disney, um, a tr- beautiful company in every sense of the world. Uh, word. If you want to talk about Disney, if you want to ask some questions, you can still do that. Um, you can jump into the Facebook group. Um, the Rast Facebook community will um, point you in the right direction. And you can just uh, request to join and share some of your thoughts and ideas from this episode. If you want to ask me more advanced questions, you can do that in coming months. Just send your emails in podcast at ras.com.au. Kevin, first podcast. I thought you did really well, mate. Thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, lovely to be here, mate. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.
Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest, and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.